Join me in the word of prayer. Our Father, we want to give you thanks. I want to give you thanks for Christ. Thanks for all that you have done for us. And even this morning as we come to your word, we thank you that you've been so gracious in giving us your spirit and giving us your grace to understand, believe, and obey what you have given to us. I do ask that you would bless us this morning, that as we study this passage of Scripture, that you would cause our hearts to overflow with thanksgiving for your grace in our lives and in the lives of others around us, so that we may truly reflect on the work that the gospel has accomplished, is accomplishing, and will accomplish in our lives. I do pray that we would reflect the heart of Paul as he thinks about these believers in Colossae and he offers his genuine thanksgiving to you. I pray for grace to go through this text for our benefit and your glory in Christ's name, amen. If you have your Bibles, as Tim said, I invite you to open back to Colossians chapter one and this morning I wanna bring you a message entitled The Prayer of Thanksgiving. Dr. Alexander White, who was a pastor in Scotland in 19th century, was famous for his pulpit prayers. Every time he came to preach, every time he opened in the word of prayer, he always found a reason to thank God for something. One stormy morning, when he came to church, one of the members sitting in the church, he thought to himself, well, surely on this wretched day, he's not gonna find anything to thank God for. He got up to pray, and he said, we thank you, God, that it is not always like this. You see, there is always reason for thanksgiving, no matter what. And this morning, we find ourselves in a passage which is full of thanksgiving. What makes it even more amazing that these words are penned by a man who is sitting in prison, where he has been for almost two years. Last Sunday, we began the study of this amazing letter to the church in Colossae. And as far as we can tell from the letter, this was a relatively small but healthy church that was threatened by false teaching. Now, Paul writes this preventative letter to this church in order to exalt Christ and to encourage the believers to continue in their faith. No other book in the Bible is so saturated with Christ But this is not just a theological treatise that Paul writes so that you can study and you can increase your knowledge of Christ. This letter, as we have seen last time, is very practical because he takes all of Christ and he applies it to all of life. That's why we said that the title or the theme of this letter will be complete in Christ, living in light of Christ's fullness. Once you understand who Christ is and what you have in him, that should affect the way you live day in and day out. The Colossian heresy attacked the preeminence and it attacked the sufficiency of Christ. Jesus was reduced to a mere angel and his work was good, but it was not good enough. You needed some mystical knowledge so that you can deepen your relationship with God. Legalism, asceticism were introduced as means of taming your flesh, and Christ was removed into the background. Now in this letter, Paul refutes all of these claims by exalting Jesus Christ to his rightful place. 
He's calling the Colossians to look to Christ who saved them, who redeemed them, who made them complete, and in light of that, to walk in obedience. Now, we are in this opening section of the letter, and last time we looked at the first two verses where we saw the author, we saw the audience, and we saw the greeting or the address that Paul gives to them in verse 2. This morning, our task is to cover verses 3 through 8. Verses 3 through 8 is one sentence in Greek with one main verb, and that you have here in verse 3. We give thanks. Everything else in these, three, in these five verses falls under this one idea. We give thanks. As we unpack this passage of Scripture, I want to do three things this morning. I want to begin by talking about the function of thanksgiving. Every time we study a passage of Scripture, we say, hey, why is it here? What would this book be missing if this passage wasn't here? What is he trying to do with this thanksgiving section? That will be the first thing we'll talk about. Second, we'll talk about the manner of thanksgiving. And thirdly, we'll consider the cause of thanksgiving. Why is Paul rejoicing? What caused him to rejoice? And as we go through this, I pray that our hearts would overflow with thanksgiving just as it was in the case with Paul. Join me as I read the first eight, letter, eight verses of this letter. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even it has, as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Let's begin, first of all, by considering the function of thanksgiving. Now, in order to do so, we have to summarize the context of these words. As you recall last time, we said that Paul, Paul's knowledge of the church in Colossae was not firsthand. It was secondhand. He is in Rome at this moment. He's coming to the end of his imprisonment. We know that from other letters, such as letter to the church in Philippi, which was written at the same time. He's been there for about two years. We know that he's never been to Colossae. And he has one guy here who came, his name is Epaphras, who came and who told Paul about the circumstances of the church. He told him how the church was doing, and he told him of the challenges the church was facing. We know that at this moment, he is with Paul in Rome. He traveled over a thousand miles. Now, the text doesn't tell us exactly as to why he went to Rome, but we could assume that he came to Paul to bring him a report and to ask him guidance in his situation. Last time we saw that in Philemon 23, Paul speaks of this man and he says that he is a fellow prisoner of Jesus Christ. 
Now, it's unclear whether he was also in prison with Paul or he was just so tightly knit to Paul's ministry that he says, listen, this guy is so close to me that he's fellow prisoner of Jesus Christ. He came to Rome and he informed Paul because verse 8, if you look down, it says, and he also informed us of your love in the spirit. He informed Paul of the circumstances in the church in Colossae. And when he did, in response to what Paul heard, Paul dictated this letter. And having introduced himself in verse 1, having told us who the letter is to, having given them this general greeting as he always does in every letter, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, the first order of business for Paul is to go into this lengthy section of thanksgiving and praise. Now you could say that Paul doesn't have to do that. Paul could just go straight into talking about the problems that the church has. He, go, he can go and attack the heretics. He can attack the heresies just head on. But he doesn't do that. He spends 14 verses, the first 14 verses of this book, praising Colossians and praising God for the work that he was doing in the church in Colossae. Now, we see this is the importance of this because Paul does this, but not all the time. For example, turn for a second to the book of Galatians. I want you to see the contrast between this letter and the letter to Galatians. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul starts pretty much the same way. He starts by identifying himself, by identifying his readers, by giving them greeting. But then you see the difference. You see what happens right after greeting. Look at verse 1. Of Galatians. In Galatians 1, Paul says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ. He goes on in this lengthy note about his apostleship because that's what was challenging. This is a challenging letter. Then in verse 2, he identifies those who are with him. He says, all the brethren who are with me. And then at the end of verse 2, he says, it is to the churches in Galatia. Then he gives him his standard greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And by the time he is done with verse 5, he jumps into the deep end of the pool. Look at verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. By the time you come to verse 8, he's calling curses down from heaven. You believe some other gospel? Go to hell. That's what it says. Notice there is no warm feelings here. There are no tingling words. There is no appreciation. No, I greet you in the name of Christ. By the way, you got a problem. Not so in the book of Colossians. Not so. He doesn't start and he doesn't go right away confronting the heretics who were promoting false heresy in the church. He starts off in the first 14 verses. He offers thanksgiving to God. He records for us the prayer that he has for these guys. Because Paul wanted to do something with the section. I would suggest to you that this Thanksgiving section serves at least three purposes. First of all, there is pastoral function here. There is pastoral function of this letter. Listen, Paul is not just theologian who writes theological books for people. First and foremost, Paul is a pastor who is concerned for the hearts of his readers. That is his first and foremost concern. When he writes 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, 28, Paul says, there is a daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. 
Now, Paul was deeply concerned for these people in Colossae. He will say some difficult things. He will challenge them later on in this epistle. But he begins with praise and thanksgiving that he has to God for what he is doing in their life. He begins by telling them how much time he spends praying for them. You know, it is much harder to dismiss Paul's instruction when you see him on his knees praying for you all the time. He begins first and foremost as this pastor who cares for the heart of these people. He says, guys, I just want you to know that I am praying for you all the time. And I want you to know that this is what I am praying for. Now, there is a lesson here for us. No matter who you are, whether you're a pastor or whether you're a parent or whether you're just pals, the lesson here is that before you just go to people, as Paul does in Galatians, although sometimes you might have to do it, there is a way to approach him the way Paul does here. Our care for people doesn't begin when we go start talking to them. Our care for people begins when we go start talking to God about them. And Paul tells them here that, I want you to know, I want you to know that I care for you, and I love you, and I spend time in prayer for you. Now, sometimes you might have to pull Galatians on somebody. But most of the time, what Paul does here, he does in practically every other letter in the book, where he begins by praising them for what they were doing, by praising God for the work that he was doing in their life. The goal of this section is first and foremost to encourage them, to show them the grace of God in their life. So there is a pastoral function of this letter. And not only that, we can say that there is an exhortative function in this letter. There are no commands in this passage of Scripture. Paul just recounts what he is praying for. Now, there is a couple different ways how you can exhort people to do something. One way you can just flat out tell them, I want you to go and I want you to do this. And Paul does that. But there's another way to encourage them or to command them, not explicitly, but implicitly. And when you praise somebody, when you say, for example, if I would say to you, brothers and sisters, I want to thank you guys that you come on time, that you listen attentively to the word, and that you try to implement in your life what you hear. Thank you. Now, when you hear that, when you hear that someone is praising you for doing something, even though there are no commands to do anything, you understand that you want to live up to that. You want to live up to that standard. You praise your kids and you say, listen, I want to thank you for cleaning your room. I want to thank you for being obedient in this situation. And all of a sudden the kid's like, oh, I'm being praised for doing the right thing. So my parents appreciate that. And I want to live up to that because I want to praise them. Because I want to please them. Now, when you read this section and when Paul says, guys, I want to thank you for what you are doing. And all of a sudden, there's this implicit command that, yeah, Paul really loves that. God really loves that. So I should live up to that. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. Paul is telling them, I praise God for this and this and this in your life. And as you read this, you're like, well, I guess God is pleased with this because Paul is telling us that he praises God for this. And if I am doing that... Then in this way, Paul exhorts them to continue to walk in Christ, to walk in obedience. And as we'll see what Paul praises them for, we will see that Paul implicitly tells them, 
listen, continue in this. Now, this Thanksgiving section has that purpose. Paul wants to spur them on from the very beginning not to abandon the gospel, not to forsake it for something else that is being offered to them. He wants to exhort them to, as we see here, to exercise their faith and to walk in love. Now, if we were to say explicitly what Paul says implicitly for the, from, from this section, we'd say at, three, at least three things. First of all, Paul tells them, hold on to your faith in God. That's what he's going to praise them for. That's what he's going to thank God for. I thank God for your faith in Christ. Then the message is that I need to continue to hold on to my faith in Christ. Second, he's going to praise them for loving the saints. So there is this implicit command or implicit exhortation that you need to walk in this. You need to continue to love the saints. Faith is always manifested in your works. That's what you ought to do. And third, implicit command here is that you stand firm in the gospel. Because he's going to say that your faith and your love are rooted in the gospel which has come to you. So don't abandon the gospel because if you abandon the gospel, then you will not be able to do that in your life. Don't fall for lies that are being offered to you by false teacher. So there's pastoral function here. There is this exhortative where Paul wants to exhort them. And the third thing, from the very introduction, there's this foreshadowing function. We read this beginning of the letter, and here, because there's just so much here, and Paul will touch on things that he will explain later on in this book. For example, from the very beginning, he begins by focusing on the person of Christ. You'll see that in just a second. Now, the entire book is going to be about the person of Christ, and he touches on that here in the very beginning. He speaks of their faith in Christ. The entire book is about the attack on their faith in Christ. So he touches on that here. He talks about the gospel. The gospel which has come to them, the gospel which, which they have believed, and the gospel which was being attacked, which will be defended later on in the book. He speaks of the hope that compelled them to live differently. He speaks of the faithfulness of their pastor, something that he will return later on in chapter 4. He praises God for the growth that he is accomplishing in their life, something that he will touch on in chapter 3. All of these things in this section, they're just in the miniature version, they foreshadow what is to come later on in the book. So with this Thanksgiving section, Paul thanks God and Paul demonstrates his pastoral concern. He calls them or he exhorts them to walk in the gospel and there's an implicit command here to live up to that praise. Now let's look specifically at the text and look secondly at the manner of thanksgiving. He begins in verse 3 and he says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Now when Paul says, we give thanks, most likely refers to himself and Timothy, who is mentioned in verse 1. Perhaps others who were there when Epaphras came and he offered this report to Paul. And Paul says, we give thanks. There is this ongoing activity. Later on, we'll see that we always give thanks to God. Now, notice the object. Notice the object. He says, we give thanks to God. Thanks is to God. Yes, he praises them for their faith, for their love, but he starts by saying, we give thanks to God. Why? Because everything that they do 
is a result of God's work in their life. He says, Epaphras came and he told us of how well you're doing. And all I can do is I could just praise God because God is at work in you. If it wasn't for God, you would not be able to be what you are or do what you do. Now observe how Paul describes God. He doesn't just say, we give thanks to God and he moves on. He says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This prayer is addressed specifically to the Father. Now, this is not accidental. If you pay attention, this is the second time in the first three verses that the Father is mentioned. Because in verse 2, he says, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice from the very outset, Paul touches on the relationship within the Trinity. Relationship of the Father and of the Son. I mentioned the last time, and we'll see this in chapter two, that in chapter one later, that the person of Jesus Christ was, being, was under attack. They were saying that he is just an emanation of an angel. He's just a created being. And notice that here from the very beginning, he says that Jesus Christ is the son of the heavenly father. He's not just a created being. God the father is the father of Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, he doesn't stop there because if you look at verse 12, he's going to say the same thing again. In verse 12, he says, giving thanks to the Father who qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. Now, just as a footnote here, I think it's safe to say that even within the church, there is confusion about the Father. I mean, most of us, most of the people, they think of Jesus as this loving, merciful, caring person who came who laid down his life for you so that he can satisfy the wrath of the father and sometimes even within our circles God is pictured as this angry God and Jesus just stands between God and you and he satisfies his wrath so that you'll be okay with the father now notice the presentation of the father in this verse he says we want to thank the father of our Lord Jesus Christ Notice as he begins to explain his work, he's going to say in verse 12, it was the Father who qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. It was the Father who rescued you from the domain of darkness. It was the Father who transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Because the Son and the Father are of the same essence, Jesus hates sin just as much as the Father. And the Father love sinners just as much as Jesus Christ. Because they share the same attributes, they act exactly the same way. How they carry out their mission is different. The Father sends the Son. The Son comes and He accomplishes the mission to which the Father sends Him. But notice, it is both the Father and the Son. John 3, 16, the most famous verse in the Bible. For God the Father so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Who loved the world? The father loved the world. And because the father loved the world, he sent his son to accomplish their redemption. Now let me ask you, if the father would show up right here, right now, would you run to him or would you run from him? You see, based on our perception, we would react a certain way. 
If you perceive this father as this loving father who gave his only son to redeem you, you would love to run to him as to your loving father. That's why Paul begins here and he starts here. And he says, notice the relationship between the father and the son. He is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But notice this section is not just about the father. The work of redemption is the work of Trinity. Because every person of the Trinity is mentioned in this opening. Verse 1 mentions the father. As I said already, verse 3 mentions the father. Verse 6 mentions the father. The son is mentioned in verse 1. An apostle of Jesus Christ to the saints and brethren in Christ Jesus. In verse 7, he says there is faith in Christ Jesus. In verse 4. And notice the Spirit is also mentioned. Because if you look at verse 8, he says he informed us of your love in the Spirit. The entire Trinity is at work in you in order to bring about the salvation which God has for you. Now just a note here. If you have NASB, and you look at verse 3, it says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Now, if you have ESV, it says, We always give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, when we pray for you. Notice that word always, that adverb, is placed in different places. NASB said we're always praying And ESV translates it and says, we always give thanks to God. Now, because the word order in Greek is much different than it is in our English Bible, in some sense, they can go with both, but it is better to put it with the first phrase, we always give thanks to God when we pray for you. Now, when he names Jesus Christ, he uses three different titles for Christ or three different names He says, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, it's so important in this book. He is Lord, he is Jesus, and he is Christ. He is Lord, that's his title of honor. And he'll return back to that later on in this chapter. He is Lord of everything. He is Jesus, which means Savior. He has come to save, and he's Christ, who is the promised Messiah of old. He'll come back to this in chapter 2, verse 6, if you look at it. Paul says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord. So walk in him. He is your Lord. He can't be your Savior and not your Lord. And he says, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so you ought to walk in him. So how did Paul express his thanksgiving to God? First of all, notice he constantly prayed for them. It was an unceasing prayer. He mentions that in verse 9 when he continues. And he says, we have not ceased to pray for you. We are constantly, or every time we pray for you, we thank God. Now, there are two elements to this prayer. There is a thanksgiving section, which is verses 3 through 8. And then there is petition section, verses 3 through 14, 9 through 14. In our, in our section here, he says, we give thanks to God. In verse 9, he says, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask. And then he goes on to say what he's asking. So he begins with thanksgiving, and he transitions to petition, which we'll study next time. Now, what an encouragement this would have been for the church in Colossae, that you have Paul, who is constantly praying for them. And by the way, Paul was not alone in that. If you look at chapter 4, verse 12, their pastor, who is now with Paul in Rome, notice what he's doing. He says, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, sends you his greeting, and he's 
always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. That's what Paul was doing. He says, we are constantly, always praying to God for you. So what is the manner of thanksgiving? He says, we give thanks to God. Our thanks is addressed to the Father who has done all this for you. It was a corporate prayer. It was a prayer of thanksgiving. It was prayer addressed to the Father. It was a constant and continual prayer. Let's look thirdly at the larger section here. What was the cause of their thanksgiving? What did Paul hear that caused him to rejoice and to offer this prayer of thanksgiving to God? Well, he says in verse 4, he says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. There are two things here that cause Paul to overflow with thanksgiving. There is their faith in Christ, and then there is their love for all the saints. First, let's talk a little bit about the faith in Christ. Now, this is where everything starts. If you take these two terms, you can say that one of them talks about a vertical relationship between them and God, and the second one talks about horizontal relationship between them and one another. Now, when he says, we give thanks to God for your faith in Christ Jesus. Now, faith in Christ Jesus is not just a mental ascent to a set of truths that you can affirm. Oh, I believe in this and this and this, and you can sign on a dotted line. Devil and demons believe in the truth of the Bible. They know it's true. In the book of James, James says, you believe that God is one? That's a reference back to Deuteronomy 6.4, the most important passage in the Old Testament for the Jews. You believe that? Awesome. Great, you do well. But just remember, the demons believe and shudder. And Paul starts here and he's saying, I want to thank God for your faith in Christ Jesus. Notice the object of the faith. It was the faith in Christ Jesus. Now this faith in Christ Jesus, there are two elements at least that are mentioned all throughout the Bible. First, when we're talking about your faith in the person of Jesus Christ, when someone believes in the person of Jesus Christ, first of all, it starts with repentance. It start with, starts from the very beginning. Gospel of Matthew. Gospel of Matthew. John the Baptist comes on the scene. And the first message that he preaches, he was preaching the kingdom of God. And the first message that he preaches, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The next chapter, Jesus comes. Chapter 4, verse 17, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There is no biblical faith in Christ without repentance, without change in your mind, without confession of your sins. Now he says, when I hear of you, when I hear report of the church in Colossae, the first thing I hear is that these people have understood their sins. They have placed their faith in Christ. They have, first of all, repented of their sins. And second, there's trust. It is one thing to acknowledge that you are a sinner. It is one thing to repent of your sin. But the flip side of that is that you turn from your sin and you begin to trust in Christ. That's the difference between owning a parachute and putting your parachute on. You can have a parachute with you in an airplane, but if you don't put it on and, jumping out of, and jump out, you got a problem. When you say that you have faith in Christ, that means that you have put your complete trust in Christ. You're no longer trusting your own performance. You're no longer trusting even in your own faith. You're trusting in the person of Jesus Christ. You're saying, I'm gonna take all my eggs and I'm gonna put them in one basket and I'm gonna say, Jesus, if you don't get me to heaven, 
I'm not going there. I'm not going to try to earn it. I'm not going to try to work for it. I'm not going to look for any other solution for my sin problem. There is just one person. It is the person of Jesus Christ. It is coming to the Father and saying, Father, forgive me and accept me based on the work of Christ. And anyone who comes to the Father in this way will not be rejected. Now, where does this faith come from? Paul says, I want to praise God for the faith that is in you. But we ask the question, where do you get this faith? Romans 10, 17. Paul says, so faith comes from what? Hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ or hearing the word concerning Christ. Now, this is precisely what happened here. If you look at verse 7, Paul says that this is where you got your faith. He says, just as you learn it from Epaphras, our beloved and fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. As I mentioned, Epaphras is most likely the pastor of this church who was converted under Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And Paul most likely sent him back to Colossae when he began to preach the gospel. When he began to preach repentance from dead works and faith toward God. And as he began to preach, people got saved. And that's how this church was formed. Now, this word learned is very interesting. In verse 7, he says, just as you learned it from Epaphras. Now, this is the same word that you have in a great commission. Great commission, Jesus says that you are to go into all the world and you are to make disciples. This is what you are supposed to do. Now, making disciples includes going to people, preaching to them. When they believe the gospel, it is to baptize, you baptize them. And when you baptize them and they become part of the church, you train them in the truth of the gospel. That's exactly what Epaphras did. Epaphras went to Colossae and he began to preach. When people got saved, he baptized them and he stayed there with them in order to train them and in order to teach them. And that's why Paul was able to say, just as you learned it from Epaphras. And notice it is not accidental here the way Paul describes him. He says he is a faithful servant of Christ. He's fellow, first of all, he's fellow bond servant. Literally, he's a slave. He's slave of Christ. And notice he is beloved and he's faithful. The two things that Paul hitting on again and again and again in this passage. The second word is interesting where he says that he is a servant of Christ. That's the word where we get deacon. So he was most likely sent out by Paul to this church where he preached the gospel to them and they believe. And just one more note. And the textual variant here, because if you have NASB, it says, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. ESV says, who is a faithful servant of Christ on your behalf. The, the difference is just one letter. And how you take it, ours or your, makes difference. And most likely, based on the external evidence and internal evidence, based on the manuscripts, we can conclude that our behalf was the original reading. So most likely, we can say that Paul was the one who sent Epaphras, and he was the deacon, or he was the minister of God on behalf of Paul, who brought the gospel to Colossians. And through his faithful proclamation, the people there were converted. Now, faith describes their relationship to God. This is how you relate to God. The second aspect that he prays or he thanks God for here describes their relationship with one another. Notice he says, we thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And then the second one, and the love which you have for all the saints. Now notice these two, they go hand in hand. 
Faith in Christ Jesus goes hand in hand with love for all the saints. In fact, without the second one, you cannot have confidence in the first one. Remember the book of James? Book of James, chapter 2. James writes this, verse 14. He says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? If you say, I have the first element, faith in God, but you have nothing to show for it. So what use is that? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you say to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Now Paul says, I thank God that you have both of these things. You have faith in Christ Jesus and you have love for one another. That faith produces love for all believers. Now notice it says you have love for some of the saints. Is that what it says? No. You have love for all of the saints. I mean, Paul loves this word all. In fact, this word all is the most repeated word in the entire book. At least 32 times he's going to mention all, 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 all again. And here again he says, this love, it manifests itself in that you love or you exhibit love to all the saints. Now, how can you do that? You can't do that on your own. It is because the Trinity is in you, because God is in you. That's why in verse 8 he says he informed us of your love. What kind of love? It's the love in the Spirit. It's the love which the Spirit produces in you. This is supernatural. You cannot do this on your own. But because the Spirit of God is in you, you are able to love all the saints. And it begins with the saints, but it extends to the whole world. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12, he says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. You love the saints within the body. You love your brothers and sisters. And then that love, it extends to all the believers. So Paul is thankful for their faith toward God, which is expressed in their love for one another. Now in verse 5, Paul gives the grounds for their faith and their love. This is where faith and love come from. Verse 5, he says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. He says, you continue to believe. You continue to love one another because the gospel has come to you. Because the gospel has produced this in you. He says, when someone, when Epaphras came and he preached the gospel, he preached to you about the hope which is now producing love and faith in you. Now notice all these different words for the gospel, for the word. He says, the gospel, which is the word of truth. The gospel is not a myth. It's not just an idea. It's not just a good message. He says, the truth of God has come to you. And you have come to believe the truth of God. And when this gospel has come to you, Epaphras preached to you about hope. Notice this was the gospel of grace. It wasn't the gospel of works. The gospel wasn't about you doing something so that you could be accepted by God. The gospel was not you just need a little bit of more knowledge. The gospel is not that you need an angel to help you out. The gospel is not that you need to keep certain laws. The gospel is not that you should observe certain holidays. No, he says it was the gospel of grace that has come to you. 
The grace of God in Christ Jesus has come to you. The grace has nothing to do with your performance. Grace has everything to do with what God does for you. It was the gospel of grace. It was the message that Epaphras came and he says, let me tell you what God did for you. Believe that message. It was the gospel of grace. But what was the gospel of grace and the truth all about? He says it was about the hope. He says you are able to exercise faith and you're able to love because of the hope. Now if you look at the word hope, and if you were just to look it up in a dictionary, you would find a definition like this. What is hope? It is a feeling or expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. That's how the world defines hope. You just have this feeling that something would happen, but it's not a biblical definition of hope. That's not how the hope defined in the Bible. Now, when we look at Paul's words, I want us to look at this word hope, and we'll just focus on one chapter, this chapter, Colossians chapter 1. Just consider for a moment how he defines hope here. Look at verse 23. It is mentioned again. Verse 23, Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a prisoner. Notice he says here, when Epaphras came to you, he preached to you the gospel of hope. And you are not supposed to move away from that hope of which you heard in the gospel. This was his ministry. And Epaphras was an extension of our ministry. He goes on later in the chapter to describe his own ministry. And look at verse 27. Verse 27, Paul says, this is what I do. I walk around and I preach the gospel, and this is what I do. To whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among Gentiles. And what is the mystery that Paul preached? He says, this is the mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Notice he equates, he says, I proclaim to you mystery, and I proclaim to you mystery, the mystery of Christ. What did Epaphras preach to them? Epaphras preached Christ to them. That's why in verse 28 he goes on to say, we proclaim what? What does your text say? Him. Him. Who's him? Christ. What is the message of the gospel about? It's about, it's about Christ. It's about what Christ has done for you. It's about the, the gift that Christ is offering to you. And we can say, if we go back to our text, and we can say here that the hope that you have, the hope that is defined here is because of Christ. You see, as a believer, all of the benefits you have, the inheritance you have, the things that are stored up for you in heaven, they're bound up in one person. And that one person, according to Paul here, it is Christ. Christ is your hope, and because he is your hope, you can live this way. First Timothy chapter 1, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus, Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Christ Jesus is your hope. Christ Jesus is the one who is waiting in heaven for you. The gospel begins with you believing in Christ Jesus. You continue your spiritual walk by faith in Christ Jesus. And when you stand on that last day, you will be in the presence of Jesus. And he reminds Colossians and he says, guys, everything that you have is bound up in one person. It is Jesus Christ. Yeah, he is now in heaven. Yeah, he is there. Yes, he is awaiting you there. But you live right now in light of this. That's what Epaphras preached to them. That's what he preached when he proclaimed the gospel to them. 
And notice, although that this is a supernatural event, when someone believes in the gospel, it is a miracle. Because you're spiritually dead, God has to work in you. But notice he says here that when this happens, if you go back to verse, um, let's see, verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard, number one, they heard the truth, because it comes from hearing of the truth, the word of truth in the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world. It is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as, as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. Notice these elements. You hear the truth. You comprehend it. You're able to understand it with your mind. And the Lord uses your mind so that it penetrates down to your heart. You hear the message. You understand the message. You believe the message. And then you have faith in Christ Jesus. The message to Colossians is if your hope is in Christ, you can endure what you're enduring. You can go through the sufferings, through the pain, and through the things that are being offered to you. Now notice this gospel bears fruit. If the gospel comes, there is fruit. If there is no fruit, you can question whether there is the gospel. Notice he says this is not the case just with people in Colossae. He says the gospel is being preached in all the world. By this time, year 61, it's been about 30 years since the gospel has been proclaimed. It goes to various corners of the earth. And where it goes and where it's being preached, people are being saved. And Paul says when the gospel comes, when the message is being proclaimed, people believe in the gospel. And when they believe in the gospel, the gospel begins to change them. The gospel begins to change their life. He says it is increasing, it's spreading. It's going forth, it is spreading in your life. The gospel conquers things in your life. And the gospel conquers all kinds of people. The gospel go forth. He doesn't say... When you believe, you'll sit in the church for about 10 years, and then hopefully after that, maybe someday you'll bear some fruit. No, he says this gospel began to bear fruit in your life ever since you heard of it, ever since you understood the grace of God. Yeah, the fruit is different, and hopefully 10 years later, you're growing much faster and your fruit is much different. But the gospel begins to show itself. If God invades your life and nothing changes, then there's a problem. And Paul looks at Colossians. And Paul hears the report that Epaphras brought about them. He says, I thank God for you. I thank God for you because this gospel which he has preached to you is bearing fruit in your life. You are walking in faith. You are believing in Christ. And you are walking in love toward one another. You will know them by the way they relate to one another, Jesus said, right? By the way they love one another. And Paul looks at this church that is being attacked by heretics he says, I praise God for you. I am thankful to God for you. Because the gospel actually accomplished its work in your life and is accomplishing at the moment. Now, since Paul wrote this section to encourage the church, I want to do the same. I want to encourage you for the work of God, of the gospel in your life. You see, it is so easy to look around at yourself, look around at your family, look around at your church, and see all the things that are wrong. Paul could have looked at the church in Colossae and began with all the things that are wrong, but he doesn't. I mean, think back to your own conversion. Think back to the salvation of people in your family. Or think back to your church. And just think back to the progress that the gospel has made in your life. Can you look at your fellow brother and sister and say, listen, I'm so grateful 
That five years ago you struggled with this, but you no longer struggle with this. That three years ago you were dealing with this situation, but you're no longer dealing with this. Why? Because God is at work in you. Your faith increases, and because your faith is increases, you're able to walk differently. You're able to do things differently. I'm so grateful the way you relate to other people because I see the gospel at work in your life. It's so easy just to look at the things that are wrong. And yes, there are things that are wrong. And yes, they will always be there. But we have to be just like Paul, grateful to God for the progress that the gospel is making in our lives, in the lives of our families, in the lives of our church. And with Paul, we can say, listen, we are not what we ought to be, but we are not what we were. By God's grace, because God indwells us. And the second thing is that there is a challenge here. There's a challenge here. You look at the small church that was being attacked by heretics. And yet, in the midst of all their afflictions, they're able to walk in love. They're able to walk in faith. They're able to persevere. And Paul is able to write to them. And he says, I want to thank God for you. Let me ask you. If someone would come to Paul, to that prison cell, and report to him about your life, would Paul write this to you? Would Paul say, listen, I, I thank God for what he's doing in your life. Notice there's a challenge here. There's this implicit encouragement to, I want to live up to this. If I claim to believe the gospel, if I proclaim that I have been converted, then I ought to exhibit that in my life by the way I relate to God and by the way I relate to other people. By the way, notice these are the two greatest commands. You love God and you love the people. You do that, you fulfill all the commandments. And Paul sums it up here and he says, when the gospel has come to you, now you are walking in love. Let me ask you, is your life marked by faith in Christ Jesus and love for all the saints? Do you believe that Jesus is the one who lived a perfect life on your behalf and then suffered and died so that you would be accepted? Have you, just like these people, repented of your sins and placed your faith in Christ? Do you love all the saints unconditionally because of the power you have in the gospel? And if you answer no to any of these questions, maybe today for the first time you need to come to Christ and be saved. Because the gospel that, gospel that saves is the gospel that changes lives. Sure, we have room to grow. Sure, we have improvement. But these are the marks of true believers. You see, when Christ comes into our life, he changes us. And through the gospel, he changed the lives of these people. And that's why sitting in that prison cell, Paul was able to be grateful to God for the change May we as a church display these characteristics as we grow in our faith toward Christ and in our love for one another. Our Father, we thank you that we are accepted because of the work of Christ. We are brought near because he paid it all and because he has made us complete. And we thank you we thank you for the progress that we have in our lives, for the progress that we have in our church, for the progress that we have in our families. Lord, we have room to grow, but we thank you that you are faithful and you will conform us to the image of Christ. We thank you that you are at work in us through your spirit 
that one day we will be like Christ. I pray for power. I pray for grace to manifest these characteristics in our daily life as we go from here. In the name of Christ, amen.